Adam, you want me to just keep this on? For, my, for myself? Huh? Let me just keep this on. Because you don't need it, do you? I do need it for children's money. Because right. I'm going to put a stool right here and sit down. All right. Where do you want me to put it? I had it right there. What are you doing? Just testing it. Oh. Testing one, two. Testing one, two. All right, we'll go ahead and get started. So, good morning, everybody. A few announcements for you. I'm going to look at them so I don't mess them up. Here we go. So, yesterday at the at the at the yard sale, we raised a thousand dollars, which is awesome. That's going to more than cover what we took out to uh, to secure the room for the renewal program, uh, so that we can invest in uh, in the lives of these ladies that are there, uh, finding help and all of those good things. So that's going to be. That's going to be good. So that money will all go back into savings, and we will do with that uh, whatever we need to do with that. And you will be informed on all of those things as ministry opportunities come up. So for everyone that was a part of that, thank you so much. I, I'll tell you what was what was very, very nice was the hands-off role that Austin and I got to play with that. Um, so from the very beginning, we've been both very administrative with the things with the church, you know, because a lot of things we do behind the scenes because when you're starting out, you kind of do those things. Now, that's okay, but a lot of that is bad because maybe I failed to delegate or maybe he fails to delegate, and you just kind of do things yourself. You don't let people who want to and are gifted to to lead in a way that they can lead. So it was really great for you all to come up with the idea and for us to just say, uh, just do it. If you got something we can help you with, let us know. So everything went off really well. I was approached at, uh, at, at, at a race yesterday that Marley was running in with a couple of different elementary schools represented. And some lady whom I did not know approached me and she said, aren't you, you know, she goes, in your church having a yard sale? I said, yes, they are. She goes, and you're here. I was like, Yes, I am. I am here. I am here. She didn't mean it in any in any wrong way. She was just making conversations, you know, kind of being funny. So yeah, so uh, so it was great. It really was. You all did a fantastic job pulling that off, and it was uh, it was it was just nice uh, to uh, to just show up and eat some barbecue and uh, and all that stuff. Not right now, Marley. Um, anyway, so thank you, Stephen and, and Jamie. The barbecue was amazing, excellent. Right? It really was. I, I texted them that, but I really, I really think. Look, I would, I would, I would get, I would get behind you guys if you opened up some kind of little barbecue palace or something. You know, I've come up with a couple of names. I won't read all of those out. I actually sat down last night and was like, let me think of some names for these guys. You know, I really got into it. You know, uh, but I won't go through this now for time's sake. But I do have some names if you're interested for later. One of them is Overalls and Company. I'll just say that. You know, I'm just. You know, I mean, it's good. There's, there's some good ones there. Bearded Brothers Barbecue, but I'll say no more. I think those are great. So anyway, thank you guys. It really was fantastic. Uh, some of the leftovers made it to my house by divine providence, so I will be eating that again today. Uh, so if you're jealous, that's just how it is. So really, really great. Thank you guys so much. Um, probably going to take all the money that was that was raised and go to Halls and Eat Wagyu Steak. I'm just saying. But, you know, it's a, it's a thing. So, all right, next announcements. Men's night, uh, we're actually going to do next Sunday. I know this is kind of springing it on you. If you can't come, that's fine. We just want to get back in that routine. I don't think we've had a men's night since maybe March uh, just because we've had kind of a busy season lately. So men's night will be next Sunday night, 630 here. We'll let you know if there's anything else that you need to know with regards to that. Uh, but that will be men's night next week. The 30th, 
uh, is the uh, the Haven Ridge Pool Party at the Groves. Uh, that's going to be from 4 p.m. to 8 p.m. on the 30th. So you come, bring your kids, have a lot of fun. Uh, because I don't know for sure, are we, we're doing food and stuff. We're doing... Okay. Okay, so bring meat for your family and a side. And I'm saying this also for the people online. Bring meat for your family and a side and uh, dessert and drink. Side dessert to share, yeah. Um, so anyway, so that's going to be the thirtieth. There should be some scrolling, uh, some, some some scrolling, uh, uh, just graphics uh, to remind you. And there's one of of Travis that's really cool. So take take pictures of that your phone and share it all you want on Facebook, and that's great. So, um, thank you. Look at that. <laughs> so. Uh, <laughs> Also, next, uh, next week, Jake Elliott will be preaching for us. So, yeah, so be praying for Jake. You know, he's been working on that, something kind of funny. Uh, he sent me a text of his outline, and it just had two short abbreviated statements on it. And I thought, well, it's going to be a short sermon, which I know Evan would be happy about. But, you know, uh, it's a... Uh, uh, but actually, if you tap on it, it opens up, and there's like a, a lot of a lot of stuff there. So anyway, so be praying for Jake. Uh, we, we we joke around a lot, and we're excited to have Jake coming up. He's a thoughtful guy, and uh, he's put he's put some some good thought into this. So uh, Jake, we pray for you, and we look forward to you coming next week and uh, and and sharing with us. So uh, any other announcements that I'm missing? Anybody questions about anything? No, we're good. Okay, so. I'm going to read from Psalm 84. I'm going to read Psalm 84 to you as our call to worship. We'll pray, and then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll worship together. So the psalmist writes these words. He says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, it faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength, whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of the wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts and you will pray, and as I pray, if the band will make their way to the stage. God, it is our privilege today to be able to gather together. Lord, though we're very different in many ways, in our preferences and our likes and our dislikes, in our hobbies and our personalities, Lord, the one thing that unifies us that matters most is the gospel. So we sit here together under that title, under that privilege and that we're united in the gospel. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. Lord, I come to you, Lord, today to offer you our praise, to offer you our allegiance, 
to sing to you and in, in, in singing to you to declare these truths that are represented in these songs, saying these things to you, ascribing to you the glory that is due. And Lord, we also ask that you would give us a, a, a mind that is right and a mind that is ready to hear and respond to truth from your word, especially with regards to these principles of marriage. Lord, help our marriages to to grow. Lord, would you cultivate greater unity? Would you cultivate and foster a stronger bond and a stronger likeness of Christ in this church as we represent that in our marriages? Father, you help us to count our marriages as gifts, as joys, even though we're broken, even though we frustrate one another, even though we have these struggles and we go into management mode when we have children and all of these things. But Lord, let us not lose sight of the gift that we have in one another. Let us not lose, lose sight of that, but let us cherish that. Let us nourish that, Lord, so that our marriages might represent to the world the beauty of the Trinity, the beauty of the gospel, and the beauty of Christ, his relationship and his affections for his bride. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand together and we'll worship.
How's everyone doing today? Good? I'm doing good. Did you have a good weekend? Did anybody do anything really cool over the weekend? Raise your hand. Anybody? Anything cool? What'd you do, Jackson? I go to the park. To the park? Really? A, a really cool place I never go to. A cool park you never go to. Well, that's, that's two cools, man. That's like you went to a park you'd never been to, and then you actually got to go to a park and play. So that's cool. Anybody else do something really cool? Emma, what did you do that was really cool? You got to see me at the run yesterday. I understand. That's oh what? Oh, you went to a run. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Emma and Marley ran. Uh, sorry. Go ahead. That was what you did. That was cool. No, no, no. I held a You held a snake. Your snake. That's right. That's right. That's right. So raising snake handlers in my family. Ethan, what did you do that was cool? That sounds really cool. They went to Carowinds. So did you, did you just do the, the theme park and ride the rides, or did you do the water stuff as well? Oh, really? Okay, okay. So, so you got to do the theme park fun rides. That's cool. Anybody else? One more. Anybody else do something really cool? Well, you, you're not sitting with the, with the folks. What did you do that was cool, buddy? You did. You did. He got a trophy for baseball, which you would think it was planned, but that's a perfect, but it's not. That's a perfect segue into what we're going to be talking about, okay? So, Calvin did. He went to a baseball party, got pizza, he got cupcakes, he got chips, they got to swim. The water was really cold, so they really just ran around in the yard chasing each other with pool noodles, which was fun. And so, but he did. He got a trophy at the end of it. And we get trophies sometimes because we've performed or because we've done something and the award for what we've done is you get a trophy, right? Like Emma and Marley ran three miles. Ethan did too. Ethan ran three miles. And you know what they got at the end of that? They got a medal, a medal that you put around your neck and it's big fat metal that just dangles right there like a giant necklace, okay? So really looked a bit flavor flavish if any of you understand the reference. So they got, they got those cool things because they earned them, right? They deserved an award because they worked really, really hard. Do you understand what it means to earn something? 
Do you understand what it means to deserve something, right? It goes two ways, doesn't it? If you do something really good, like maybe you get an allowance. We had a conversation with Marley last night about getting an allowance. And we talked about, well, you have to do things to earn that allowance. You have to do something to earn that money. So Miss Sarah and I, we made a list of things that Marley has to do in order to get an allowance at the end of the week. Now, if she doesn't do the work, what happens? Because she doesn't get a trophy, right? She doesn't get a trophy or she doesn't get money. Because why? She didn't earn it. Therefore, if she didn't earn it, she doesn't deserve to get the trophy or the money, right? You follow me so far? Does it make sense? Or is anybody really confused? Great. All right. So I have a trophy, by the way, that I want to share with you today. Okay. So this is a trophy that I got. I earned it. It's a well-deserved trophy. And if there's any question from you dads out here, I'm going to answer it today. Number one dad right here. Okay. So I know everybody's wanting to know who's the one. It's me. So, you know, here it is, right? A number one. No, no. I know what you're going to say. You're going to say your daddy's this and that, but... I, I love that, but no. So listen. <laughs> this is for the kids, not the rest of you. So, uh, so this is something my children gave me. I've gotten a, 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 a couple of these, right? But I re it's really cool to me. I keep it right beside my desk on my shelf with some of my books, you know. Uh, and so it's, it's really neat. This was just a way for my kids to express that they love me. And I would like to think that in some ways, not that I'm always, I'm not a perfect dad, um, but in some ways that I've, that I've earned this. Now, this is just representative of how they feel, you know, and they feel that they love me. They feel that maybe I'm a, I'm a good dad, you know. So this was very special because I work hard at that. I, I, I fail sometimes, but I work hard at that. Now, so, so there's things that we deserve, but that goes both ways, so we've talked about the good things that we deserve, right? But there are also bad things that we deserve. Like if you lie to your mom and dad, what do you deserve? To be in trouble, right? What if you steal something from somebody, what do you deserve? Jail, you're right, you, you get in trouble. If you steal something, then you deserve to be in trouble, right? If I steal something, you know who I'm in trouble with? First of all, I'm in trouble with God because I've sinned against him. Second of all, I'm in trouble with the law, right? Because the game changes a bit when you turn into, you know, an, an adult. That's, that's a perfect example. Jackson said, good answer, buddy. If you do something bad, you might get put in time out. You earn or deserve that if you do something bad, don't you? Now, here's something that's really neat. We do things like we work. I go to a job, and I work, and I earn money. Or, you know, uh, or if I run a race, and I get a medal because I, I finished, or I did a good job, or something like that, right? Or let's say when you run those big, long races, and somebody crosses the finish line, and they're first, and they're like, yeah, that's awesome. He, de he or she deserves that recognition because that's really hard to do so we have no problem saying you've earned that you worked really hard you put in a lot of time and a lot of training but we would also say if you do something really bad maybe you deserve to be in trouble maybe you deserve time out as jackson said maybe you deserve 
you know, to, to, to have something taken away from you. Like my parents, when I did something bad, they would, you know, they would, well, I didn't have a cell phone, but they wouldn't let me use the phone on the wall because I love to talk to my friends on the phone. They said, you can't use the phone for a week or they would ground me for, you know, from something else. So I would earn trouble, right? Because I did something bad. Now, today, and this won't take but for just a second, today, what I want you to understand is one of the many reasons, but just one, that God deserves our praise. God deserves something from us. He deserves our worship. God deserves our praise, not just because of what he has done, but because of who he is. Do you understand that? I want everybody to look at me. This is very important. God has done a lot of great things for us, but we worship him more than just for what he has done. Just who he is, just the fact that he exists, is worthy and deserving of our honor and our worship. But listen to what he has done for us. I just want you to hear one little piece of scripture so you can hear it from the mouth of God and not from, not from me, okay? So listen to this. This is a really, really neat scripture. Listen to this, and, I'll, and, I'll, and I'll, I want you to pay attention. Everybody listen? Here we go. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who deserves our worship, right? Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Would you rather have a present from God or a present from me? From God, yeah, right. Here we go. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glory, of his grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now listen, I know that that doesn't make sense to you, but let me explain. What you need to know is that you and I don't deserve to be saved from our sin. We don't deserve that. What we deserve is to pay for our sin. Okay? But what God does for those who believe is God covers that in Jesus. And God saves us. He rescues us from darkness, from the consequence of sin. He rescues us from what we deserve. And what we deserve is to be separated from God forever. That's what we deserve. But God gives us what we don't deserve. It's called grace. He gives us something that we could never earn, something that we could never be good enough for. And that's our salvation for those who trust in Him. That is a number one reason why we can praise God for who He is, but for what He has done. Let's pray. And uh, you can go back to your seats, okay? Lord, I thank you again for these strong biblical truths. And I pray that you would use this truth to connect to these young hearts and these young minds. Lord, that you would foster that and cultivate that in their minds so that they can uh, reconcile these things. They can, they can uh, just interact with the reality of things as it pertains and applies to their lives. Lord, help, help us as parents to communicate these, uh, these eternal truths to our children, Lord, so that they may know. Lord, help them to have a worldview that, that grants them the right perspective with regards to their sin, what they deserve, and the grace of God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you can go back to your seats. Or be dismissed with the adults that are taking you outside.
three and four year olds, yes.
Before Austin comes up, let's pray for him and for our missionaries. And then once we're done, Austin, you come on. Father, we do ask that you would grant Austin the grace, even though he's not feeling super great today, grant him the grace to communicate uh, your truth to your people. And Father, I pray that as we consider these things with regards to marriage, that there would be a sobriety with these things. Lord, as we look at conflict, conflict resolution, and how these things are dealt with in the marriage, these these really matter. Um, the world is looking at Christians, in a, especially at our marriages. And Lord, I do believe that it matters how we seek reconciliation and resolve a resolution in our conflict. So Lord, I ask that you would grant Austin grace. Lord, we also lift up our missionaries to you. Lord, and we ask that as uh, as they are stateside, kind of waiting on what's next, Lord, that you'd give them patience, Lord, that you would cause their time now, their time here, as they're getting to see family, as they're getting to spend time, Lord, that they would be able to capitalize on that, and that it would be a rejuvenating time for them. I know a lot of them struggle with uh, maybe maybe guilt because they want to be where they feel God has called them, and they just can't control that right now, but they would rest in your sovereignty, that they would take delight in that, knowing that uh, you work all things after the counsel of your will. So, Lord, we pray for them. We pray for uh, their, their, their renewal right now, that you would strengthen them, and you would do what's necessary to equip them to be ready to be back on the field. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Alan. And uh, I want to express a personal thank you to everyone who helped out with the, uh, with the fundraiser this past weekend. Just really, really appreciate all, all of your uh, efforts from everybody who helped out with the yard sale to the barbecue. Uh, thank you, thank you so much uh, for that. I had the opportunity just to, to come and hang out and visit and enjoy fellowship you know, with people. And uh, it was just great to observe and watch. Uh, our church family interact with people from the community, interact with others, be hospitable, um, and and serve others, and then serve one another. Uh, so thank you, thank you for that. Um, well, if you have a Bible, I hope you do. We're going to be we're going to be in James four and Colossians three, um, because this is a a topical sermon. Um, I, I kind of struggled with where to go with it, how to how to do it. I'm not used to doing that, so. Um, what I'm going to end up doing is I'm going to I'm going to overlay these two texts. If you remember the old uh, projectors, you know, and and then professors, teachers in schools, they would take one sheet, put it down, and then sometimes they would take another one, lay it over top of it, and you'd see a fuller picture, you know, kind of that way. I want to take these two texts and sort of lay them over top of each other, looked at them, look at them in regards to uh, to conflict in marriage. Um, but before we get there, just kind of find those texts, kind of put your thumb on it or a digital bookmark, however you do it. Um, before we get there, though, I, I just want to um, share a word of personal passion of mine. I, uh, I love movies. Um, I, I, love, I love all kinds of movies. I'm not a big like TV show person, um, but I, I love movies. And I don't know if it's something about I feel like the character development is fuller or, you know, whatever. But, you know, I love movies. And I think one of my favorite genres of movies are spy movies. You know, spy movies, spy novels. Um, yeah, I, I love the old uh, and the new, but the old much better. The old James Bond movies, probably seen all of them at least twice. Um, once I got my dad the um, uh, Have You Seen It, you know, James Bond game. Uh, and we played that. You know, that was fun. 
So, but, but I've always just found that fascinating. The spy, spy movies, espionage, counterintelligence, um, it, it's always just been really fascinating um, to me. And, and, and in thinking through this aspect of, of marriage and conflict, I, I find this, this peculiar connection between spies, counterintelligence, and the conflicts that arise in marriage. You know, if you've, uh, one of the perfect examples of this, if you've ever seen the movie Mr. and Mrs. Smith, came out years ago, uh, Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt, if you've never seen the movie, there's a husband and wife who work for two different counterintelligence espionage movies, and, and by the way, I'm, I have no connection with CIA or anything, so I may even use these terms, you know, wrong. Of course, somebody's sitting there going, if you were, that's exactly what you would say. You got me there. <laughs> Uh, but any, anyways, so Mr. and Mrs. Smith, they work for two different counterintelligence agencies, but they don't know it, you know, and so they, they live this, you know, peaceful, everyday, you know, quaint American lifestyle during their normal life at home, but when they go to work, they go to work, you know, in these, in these agencies, and there's a point in the movie where they find out that their next target basically is each other. You know, they've, they've become a threat to each other's agency, and their, you know, their, their bosses have basically said, okay, you've got to take the other one out. Um, and and there's, a, there's a battle scene in the movie that takes place in their home where they're speaking very tenderly and loving towards each other, but they're exhausting every single ounce of firepower that they've hidden in their house in order to try and destroy one another. And they literally destroy their home in the process. Um, and and I've, I've watched that scene, and I'm like, this is what happens in conflict in marriage. I mean, this is it, that we, we live this, you know, we, we live this peaceful life out there. We come to church, we're peaceable with one another, you know, everything looks great. But there's this counter-espionage that kind of takes place in the home, you know, that we do battle in covert ways and oftentimes use cruel methods on one another. You th think, uh, let me give you some examples, okay? See if this resonates, you know, with, with any of you. Um, a husband comes, day comes home from a long day at work, very tired, comes in, doesn't speak to his wife initially, just comes out, sits down on the couch and turns the TV on. Um, she decodes that message, well, he didn't say anything to me. Well, he doesn't care about me. What's the countermeasure? Okay, we're going to send in the mini hit squad. Children, daddy's home. And, you know, <laughs> and, then, and then, you know, retreat a little bit. I'm honey, I'm going to the store. Honey, I'm going to Target. See you in a bit. Or, or maybe, how about this one? Something's bothering, something's bothering the wife. You know, so something's bothering the wife. She's giving signals to the husband, but he's not getting it. Now, the husband knows something's wrong, but he's frustrated because she's not clear about it. I saw a commercial with this recently. The husband walks into the room, and the wife is just sitting there with this kind of far-off look in her face. You could tell something's bothering her. And he's like, what? And she's like, oh, nothing. And he's just like, oh, what? okay, whatever. She's not clear about it. Okay, well, I'm going to engage in silent treatment. Now, we're, we're going we're gonna to do an emotional waterboarding and starve her of attention and affection until she is clear about it. I mean, we, we, we do these things. I heard a story from one couple who will remain nameless 
where the husband comes home um, and, and when he gets home, he has just this habit of sitting in his car for, for a little while before he comes in. And she confessed. She says, it really bothers me. That really, that bothers me. And she said, you know, that sometimes the, that just that ruins the rest of the evening. While he's, you know, he's confessing, you know, this, this is me just decompressing from my day at work so I can come in and be civil sometimes. You know, but this is, I mean, this is the way we do conflict so, so often. You know, I think if, I think if Solomon could see into the lives of so many of our marriages, he would rewrite uh, what he wrote in Ecclesiastes th- uh, 9.3 all over again. That, that insanity is in their hearts. Right? So, I, I'm, I've titled this, I had, I had a lot of fun with the, the title for this, for this sermon. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I'll, I don't have time to go into a lot of it, but I ended up titling it Marital Espionage, Managing Conflict in Marriage. For reasons I hope that'll, that'll be clear. Um, but here, here's what I want to do. I want to begin with a broad view of conflict. Because we, we don't have time. I mean, this could be like a six-part series, honestly. Um, but I, I want to begin with a broad view of conflict, narrow it to these two specific texts, okay? Still dealing with vision, of how, you know, vision of how do, we, how do we manage conflict in marriages? And then get really, really practical, okay? I've got a list of about 12 things that I'm just going to hammer off real fast at the end. Practical steps to carry out that vision, Okay? So I want to I do that. That's kind of the overall. Now, let me give you three footnotes. One of those is what I'm going to address and the way I'm going to address conflict is going to assume that, 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 that the husband and wife are believers, that they are professing Christians, which means primarily they share the same general worldview. Okay? How to handle conflict in that scenario. Now, I realize not everyone is in that is is in that camp okay some are married to non-believers some are married to a spouse that you're like i'm not really sure if my husband or my wife is actually a christian okay so if that's you hang on to that because i i'm going to come in at the very end and i'm going to address that okay just very briefly at the very end okay so if that's you don't check out okay pay close attention Okay, well, I, I, but I do, I do want to address that. But the overall umbrella of, of this conflict, I'm, I'm assuming both husband and wife are confessing Christians, okay? Share, share generally that same worldview. All right, and then lastly, I, on a personal note, I feel like I've, I've got a fair clinical view on these issues, but I really struggle to apply to my marriage. So don't look at me as if I've got all this put together or anything. I'm looking at this and going, this is this is what needs to happen and what should happen. And I realize just how much I struggle in my own marriage to put these things into practice, okay? So I'm preaching this to myself first and sharing it with you. So a lot of this is going to be preaching biblical exposition, and a lot of this is really going to be ca- like a counseling session, okay? Everybody on board? Okay. Well, l- let's ask the question first. Where does Where did conflict begin? Where did, where did conflict between husband and wife begin? And we go back to Genesis 2. You notice in every single one of these, we hit Genesis 2 or Genesis 3. There's a reason for that, okay? In Genesis 2, Adam and Eve, you know, standing there, Satan's tempted Eve, right? And 
Moses writes that Eve saw that the fruit was good to make one wise. And she ate of it and she gave to her husband who was with her. And it says that their eyes were opened. They, and they realized that they were naked and they were ashamed. Okay? Now what's happened here? What, what's happened here? Because nothing biologically has changed. What has happened is that you have two unique aspects of basically the same sin of rebellion. You know, Adam and Eve both looked. Now notice that Adam and Eve were both present there, okay? It says she gave to her husband who was with, him, with her. Both of them looked at that fruit. It says it's good to make one wise. I, I can be the source of right and wrong rather than God. I can be the moral foundation of right and wrong. I can be my own autonomous moral agent. And what's interesting is when they partook of that fruit, everything broke down. You know, Eve's sin was active and it was blatant, right? It was active and, and, and blatant because she was the one that conversed with the serpent. It says she's the one who saw it, acknowledged it, ate of it. But then she gave it to her husband who was with her. And he said nothing. Adam's sin was passive. He was silent. Men, in particular young men, let me recommend a book to you. I'm going to give you guys lots of resources. So take a note on it, whatever. I want to hand you resources. It'll be helpful. Uh, men, particularly young men, there's a fantastic book. It's an older book. It's by Larry Crabb. It's called The Silence of Adam. Highly recommend that you read that. That was a, a very uh, influential book for me in my college years. Um, especially if you struggle with passivity, which I did early, early on. I still do, but very much did early when I was younger. That's a great book. Great book. I, uh, I recommend, highly recommend that you read it. Um, <coughs> so Adam and Eve sinned. They sinned in this way. The same sin, both equally gu guilty, but manifested in different ways. Okay. Now, remember, I said nothing biological happened. Nothing changed in their biology when their eyes were open. But what did happen? You know, they'd always been naked, but suddenly they realized that they were naked. You see, the shame at their na nakedness was the physical manifestation of the brokenness of their covenant relationship. Isn't it fitting the way God would frame this, the way God would sovereignly orchestrate this to happen? was that the most intimate expression of their unity, their, their sexual intimacy, right? The most intimate expression of their unity and love was the visible expression of their shame. Okay, what, what, what happened? Their eyes were open. They realized that they were shame. They look at one another and say, I'm not safe with you anymore. Eve looks at her husband and says, you're not what you should be. You see, he wasn't designed to be the source of moral authority. And when that broke down, shame entered in because they realized, I'm not safe with you anymore. I can't trust you to relate to me in the way we were designed. And further, I can't trust myself to relate to you in the way that we were designed. And so began the curse. In the next chapter, when God gives, he's, he's doling out the curse and what's going to happen throughout all eternity. He says to Eve, your desire will be for your husband. You're going to be tempted to manipulate or trample him. 
but he will rule over you. And if I can kind of frame that, that rule will be the one of abuse or neglect. There's going to be tension here. There's going to be tension because that covenant relationship is broken, and yet I still expect you to be in that covenant relationship together. Now, let me footnote this for a second. Let me speak to younger adults and children, if you can understand this, okay? Because I think this is important, this aspect of shame. You know, our secular culture has this idea that because we're only biological beings and free moral agents, that the shame of nakedness and pornography and sexual promiscuity, that that is, the, that is tethered to an old, antique, patriarchal system. And if we just get rid of it, we'll actually do better and we'll thrive. Okay? I mean, this is, what's, this is what's happening in Europe. You know, it's, it's happening in Europe. This, this is the belief. If we get rid of this, we'll actually do better. But the biblical perspective of that is no, 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 no. God has given these boundaries. He's given this framework for a reason. He's given this for a reason because it, it isn't just a matter of your freedom in sexual expression. And you know, there, there's a boundary in that that actually fosters unity and growth and thriving in your most intimate relationships. The culture you know, says, well, we can cut ties with this and we'll be okay. In fact, we'll actually be better. Try doing that on your car with your brake lines. Go cut your, now don't do this, okay? Really, just, I, I have to say this. Don't do it, but think about it. Think about it. You go cut the brake lines on your car. Is your car going to work? Absolutely. You can drive down the road. See, look, I'm free. This is great. It will work for a time until you try and stop. It's the same thing with trying to shed the idea of shame and saying, well, we just need to get over this. You know, if we would just shed the clothes and everybody walk around and be free, then we'll be okay and we'll actually thrive. You're going to do that until for a season. Maybe it's one generation, maybe it's less, maybe it's two, but eventually you're going to reach a point where you find that that has phenomenal ramifications for the most intimate relationships and the family unit that God designed, and he said, this is good. Okay, I'll get down off my soapbox, but I couldn't leave that alone because we're here. So where does conflict begin? It began in the garden when they sinned against God and Adam and Eve looked at one another and said, I'm not safe in your presence. You're not what, I sh- what you should be, and I'm not what I should be. Right? And, and this, is the, this is how the cur- curse continues on through all of Scripture. Right? And this is where we are today. Man and a woman get married, and each brings to the table their own sin nature and their own strangeness. Now, I'll go more on strangeness later, but the bring, yeah, I see see, some of y'all are going, you you don't know the half of it. (laughs) We bring those things to the table, and you would think, you you would think we'd figure this thing out. I mean, how long have we been doing marriage? Thousands of years. You'd think somebody, we we put a man on the moon with with the technology that's in a Game Boy. I heard that somewhere this past week. I don't know, maybe Alan or somebody said that, but. I was like, that just blows my mind. We put Neil Armstrong on the moon with the same technology that's basically in a Game Boy. You would think we'd figure out how to do marriage right. And yet it continues to be a battle. So why is it that conflict is so prevalent? 
right, now we're, now we're to Scripture. I hope I've laid kind of that foundation. All right, so flip to James 4. Flip to James 4. Let me read James 4, 1 through 4. Not 24. (laughs) James 4. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have. You commit murder. So you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an an enemy of God. Now, James is writing to believers. He's writing to believers here. And many of these believers, I mean, these believers, they're in family together. There are husbands and wives sitting next to each other where this type of a battle is happening. It says, what is the source of conflicts and quarrels among you? Is it not your pleasures? Is it not your earthly and sinful desires that cause these types of tensions? Okay, hold on to that passage and flip over to Colossians 4. This is where we're going to really spend most of our time. Okay, but I want you to see that. And then we're going to take Colossians uh, 3. Sorry, we're going to take Colossians 3 and we're going to overlay that over top of James. Okay, um, James 3... Uh, wait, I want to do this. Let me just pick up with verse five. Okay, he's talking about that you are being raised. You've been raised in Christ. Okay, he's saying, therefore, now that you've been raised in Christ, you're a new creation. Okay, he's speaking to you as a, the saved, the redeemed, the sanctified. You're raised in Christ. You're clothed in his righteousness. And he says, therefore, verse 5, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. You see the same overtone that James says? Those earthly uh, pleasures and passions that cause conflict among you? He's saying, consider your earthly, uh, Paul says, consider your earthly members as dead to those things. You have a new relationship with those passions deadness it says for be, uh, because of these things the wrath of god will come upon the sons of disobedience and in them you once also walked when you were living in them but now you also put them aside anger wrath malice slander and abusive speech from your mouth do not lie to one another since and this is key since you had since you laid aside the old self with its old practices okay so recognize this first and foremost There's a battle that's going on between your old self and your new self. That's not anything new. If you've been a Christian very long, that's that's Christianity 101. Right? You're fighting to become in practice what you already are in Christ. Okay? And there's a battle that's going on between your old self and your new self. Okay? That's an internal, that's a personal battle that's going on. Okay? Nobody can really see that, but you know that it's there. All right? And then you get married to another person where that battle's still happening. Okay, that person, your spouse, has a frontline seat for where that battle's taking place in your life. Right, that's in your home. 
That's where that battle is, is waging war in your spouse between the old self and the new self. Okay? But oftentimes we manage conflict in our old selves. This is where in verse 9 he says, Since you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices. But a lot of times we, when we get into conflict, something happens in our marriage Right, uh, spouses look at one another with suspect, and they begin to gather information and do this counterintelligence thing. Begin to gather inf- information from sinful habits, but also from strange kind of queer character quirks. These mesh together with our own sinful idols and our own strangeness, and conflict ensues. Right, but we oftentimes our old selves come out when we begin to try and manage that conflict, when we, when we get into those arguments. We're not laying aside the old selves with the evil practices. We're actually clinging on to them. We're holding on to them. Oftentimes it's because it's those sinful pleasures which James says are the source of our conflict. Okay? And what happens in, in this conflict is we're no longer a husband and wife unified we're more like two neighboring nations with different interests and different goals. You know, I used to think that the, you know, America only sent spies into enemy lands. Um, I'm reading an interesting book uh, by a former uh, CIA counterintelligence officer and, and director, and it's about the moral dilemma of spying. Quite fascinating. Um, but I learned through that book, no, we actually send spies and counterintelligence officers into friendly nations. Because we don't trust them, you know? I mean, we do the same thing in our marriage, right? It is, I love you, but I don't always trust you. Right? It's like we have we're two, those two neighboring nations that we're friendly and we're, you know, we're on good terms, but we don't always trust each other. So we always look at you know, suspicion with things that happen. And, and the, that line between strangeness, personality quirks, and sin... That can get really blurry. Sometimes that's really hard because your, your, your spouse's heart isn't just out there saying this is sin and this is just me being weird. You know, you're seeing the actions and you're having to kind of decode that and decide, well, what is this? In an ideal scenario, you know, there'd be peace, there'd be, you know, coffee and, you know, nice warm music and you'd sit there and you'd talk this out. But anybody who's been married for five minutes knows that's not reality. That doesn't happen. You know, you're doing good if you can talk briefly about it before your head hits the pillow. And a lot of times it's three or four days before that even happens, and then it blows up. So we, here's the thing is, the whole point of all of that and looking at this and the old self is so often when we engage in conflict in our marriages, we do battle with our old selves, and we need to shift that paradigm, instead of being two rival spies, per se, we need to be two marriage partners. Two marriage partners. Okay? Let me, let me show you this. Okay, so that's, that is the old self. Okay, that's where, that, that's where conflict usually occurs. Now look at verses 10 through 12 uh, in Colossians 3, where Paul writes, okay? He said, you were... You were malice, wrath, anger, lying. This was, this was you. This was your old self. Lay it aside, husband. Lay it aside, wife. And look at who you are now in Christ. 
verse 10, and have put on the new self who's being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Skip down to verse 12. Verse 11 is important, but I don't want you to, I don't want to derail you. Verse 12. So as those who have been, now listen to this, chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Okay? So here's the point. This is what you were before Christ. But now through the gospel, because you have been raised with Christ, that's what Paul says in in verse uh, verse 1 of chapter 3. You're now a new creation. Listen to this. I'll back up in verse three in, or chapter 3. And he says, I'm sorry, chapter 2. He says, when you were, this is what Christ has done. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Do you deserve any of the rights that you so often leverage against your spouse? No. And yet Christ has clothed you with his righteousness when you were undeserving. Okay, I want you to do this. I told you we're going to get into a counseling session. If your spouse is here, I want you to look at your spouse. I know this is going to be awkward. Just do it. Okay? If your spouse is not here, I encourage you, close your eyes. Picture the last time you saw your spouse. Okay? Picture them in your mind. Okay? He says you're raised in Christ. Your spouse was chosen by God when he or she was an enemy chosen by God when he or she was an enemy your spouse is holy set apart your spouse is beloved by God James 4 5 James writes that the that that God jealously desires the new spirit he's put within your spouse this is your spouse in new creation Chosen of God, holy and beloved. Okay, you can tear your eyes away. I know it's hard. Okay, you look at each other later. Okay? Now I want you to think about yourself. You are chosen of God. When you were an enemy. When the old self was true of you, when your allegiance was to the prince of the power of the air, to the things of this world... You were chosen, my God. Set apart as holy. We sang the song and said, Lord, we thank you for the blood applied. The blood applied that sanctifies and sets you apart as holy. You're beloved by God. You may not feel that today. And don't expect your spouse to replace Christ. Your spouse is not Jesus. You're beloved by God. He jealously desires the spirit that he has put within you. And so that's 
that is you and your spouse. You have a new allegiance. You, you, you operate under a new banner. What you were was you were in your own camps, your own individual nations, and you're, you're married, and now you're under the banner of grace. That's the banner that you fly under. So you're no longer two rival spies competing for two different worldly affections, trying to garner those things and protect those things. You're under the banner of grace to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ together and to walk in step in your relationship with Jesus. All right, so there's those two paradigms. There's those two conflict of two spies and then doing doing conflict together as two partners, okay? So there's your exposition. Okay, now here, I can leave it at that and say, well, that's great. Now, how do we do that? How do we, how do, we do that? How do we, how do we manage conflict? Okay, well, let me, give you, let me give you a few aspects that Paul says, okay? How are we doing on time? Oh, great. I was figuring this was going to take a long, long time. I'm further along than I thought. You still got 12 points at the very end. Yes, I know. Okay, let me give you some rules for managing conflict. Okay, we're still, we're still, you know, we're still 20,000 feet right here, okay? But you see, we've gone big, big view, and we're narrowing, 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 okay? Some rules for managing conflict as partners, okay? And this comes straight from what Paul says in verse 12 and 13. He says, those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. This is your position. It's your position with God. You and this is your spouse's position. There, uh, because you are chosen of God, holy and beloved, then do this. First, he says, put on a heart of compassion. The literal phrase there is bowels of mercy. Please, someone use that in conversation this next week and tell me about it. I, I, would, I would love that, you know, bowels of mercy. This is, a, this is an internal posture that you have towards your spouse before conflict begins. That you see your spouse with mercy and with grace. And that attitude, that, that heart posture results in the action of kindness. I love the bumper stickers that say, be kind. I mean, they just, I'm like, that's so cliche. Kindness doesn't just, there's got to be a foundation for that. Right? Kindness is the action that comes out of a heart's posture. I'll get off my soapbox. I'll leave that one alone. You know, but, but don't think that, you know, your spouse says, you're not kind to me. Okay, well, I'll just try and be kind to you. No, 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 no. If there's, if there's not a root of mercy there, if there's not a root of mercy and grace, then there will be no kindness. If you're in conflict in your marriage, think about that. Let the mercy of Christ's affection for you deeply wash over you. Let it soften any hard soil in your own heart and kindness will grow out of that soil. Put on a heart of compassion. Next, he says, be humble. Humility, the posture of humility, it begins with that, that view of yourself in relationship to God, in relationship to Christ. 
And that leads to gentleness and patience without belittling your spouse. It's, it is one thing it, it, it's, it's one thing to give the appearance of gentleness and patience that comes across as belittling. Without the, without the heart framework, without the posture of humility, that's what that comes across, is almost as if patronizing. Poor spouse, going to do this for them because they can't do it. Or, you know, the spouse becomes a doormat. And what... What has the appearance initially of gentleness is actually a trampling. Do you see that? It's the heart's posture of humility that begins with your relationship with the Lord and then how the Lord, then the Lord's relationship with your spouse. Regardless of what you see, remember, go back to that. Chosen, holy, beloved. If your spouse is in Christ, that is their relationship with the Lord. Even if they're going through a rough time and you're looking at them going, mm, I'm going to sit across the room from you because you might get stuck by, struck by lightning. Humility. Humility. Humility breeds gentleness, breeds patience. And then he says, bear with one another. Bear with one another. Literally, it means to endure. Paul wrote and used the same word in First, first Corinthians. He said, love endures all things. In Acts, when Paul was talking about being persecuted, when we are persecuted, we endure. We endure. We stay the course. We don't get derailed. Bear with one another. Allow room for your spouse in your marriage. Endure strangeness. Endure strangeness. And endure the crumbling of unrealistic expectations. Wives, your husband's not a mind reader. You can think and you can say, I shouldn't have to tell you that. But you need to tell him that. And that's not because he's, it's not because he's an idiot. He's not wired the same way you are. Husbands, your wives are not intimacy microwaves. I thought Alan made a good point about this last week. If you've not cherished your wife earlier in the day, don't expect sparks to fly in the bedroom at night. Bear with one another. And then lastly, forgive one another. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Be, as, as James wrote, be slow to anger and quick to forgive. You, when, you, when you enter into a, a marriage covenant, you begin the process of developing a very, very long fuse. Very, learn how to develop a very, very long fuse. And be quick to forgive. Scripture says that he who has been given, forgiven much, loves much. The measure of Christ's forgiveness towards you is the measure of the forgiveness you're to show your spouse. That's what Paul says. What did he allude to? He says, forgiving each other. On what basis? Whoever is, uh, he says, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. If you're in the midst of just a knockdown, drag out, 
conflict with your spouse. And you're saying, I cannot forgive him or I cannot forgive her. Let the cross be first and foremost in your mind. How much has Christ forgiven you? If he has forgiven you this much, the weight of that that's been forgiven, do you have a right to say, I can't forgive my spouse for whatever it is? Now, there's more to that, I realize. You know, that that, that can be a long, dark, and hard road to walk. But it begins there. Forgiveness begins there. Looking at the cross and then looking at your spouse in light of what Jesus has done for you. All right, so there's just very practical, I think, steps for managing conflict. Okay, again, big picture vision. Here's who you are in Christ. Here's who, here's who your spouse is in Christ. Holy, chosen, beloved. If you are this, if you are in Christ, if your spouse is in Christ, then put these things on. Clothe your life with them. Clothe your life with a heart of compassion, bowels of mercy. Let kindness flow out of that. Posture yourself in humility. Clothe yourself in humility and gentleness and patience will flow out of it. Bear with one another. Endure with one another. And forgive each other. Now let's take this one step further. Okay, I'm going to give you about 12 just very practical aspects 12 very practical steps to work out grace and mercy in your marriage. Okay, I'm going to give you these. I'm just going to, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on all of them. I'm just going to give them to you, and then I'll close with managing conflict between two unequally yoked uh, spouses. Okay? So the first of this, and I'm not going to call these out in number. I'm just going to, I'm going to, you know, hit them. First, know what hills to die on. Know what hills to die on. Communicate about top-tier issues for both of you. Um, each spouse, and, and then weigh this when you see an argument looming. If you see an argument coming down the pipe, just quickly do an assessment. Is this a hill to die on? You know, because we could turn this into a big problem out of almost nothing. You know, let me give you, let me give you a personal example. Okay, my wife and I have two very different views on cars. I'm extremely utilitarian. I'm perfectly fine with you giving me a motor and a wheels and heat and a manual transmission and a radio. It'd be nice, you know. I'm good with that, you know. My, my wife, she wants more safety features. She wants, you know, she wants more things for comfort. She wants more things for safety primarily, you know, and we've had conversations you know, uh, about this, but I've realized this is not a hill to die on. You know, for me now, we agree on the method of how we go about saving and purchasing a car. You know, those types of things. The big issues about safety and reasons for you know we're you know we're on track with that. But I realize when it comes time for my wife to replace a car, this is her car. It's not a hill for me to die on. You know, I mean, this could be a really really big problem. But I've learned through the years this is not a hill to die on. You know, we agree on the major things. Regarding the finances of, you know, how this is going to take place. I have a lot of respect for the way my wife goes searching for a new vehicle and that she keeps it for years. I have a lot of respect for that because I don't do that. She's comfortable going into a dealership and I feel like that I'm walking into a shark tank. You know, I mean, she'll tell you, you know, I sweat when I go into a car dealership. I'm just like, 
bunch of vultures. You know, I, I struggle with that. I really do. You know, so we have very, very different views on that, which wasn't apparent until we were like three or four years into our marriage. And I'm like, oh, this is interesting. But it wasn't a hill to die on. Know what hills to die on. Next, establish ground rules for arguments before and after the argument begins. Do this before when there's peace in your home and you're, you know, when you have opportunity to talk, talk, establish ground rules. You're thinking clearly. There's peace. You're able to, you're, you're able to talk coherently and, and in unity. And then do it after there's reconciliation, but when the memory's fresh. Healthy marriages fight well. I heard one author say, it's more important for you to act right than be right. That you act with humility, that you act with compassion, that you act as if your spouse is actually chosen, holy, and beloved than for you to be right and win an argument. Fight for each other and fight together. Next, choose your words carefully. Choose your words carefully. Be aware of blame shifting. Watch how you use the words I and you. Consider you in beginning the argument of I. You know, honey, I really struggle. I really struggle with with this thing that you do. You know, it bothers me. I don't think it's sin, you know. I think it's just, I just, I want to talk about it. Instead of saying you, 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 begin with I. Avoid never and always. You never say you love me. You never treat me with warmth and affection. Never is never. never. Always is always. Be careful. Be careful with that. Never threaten to leave or divorce. My wife and I, we made an agreement early on in our marriage that divorce was not an option for us. And it wasn't like, you know, we say this at our marriage vows. We said this is, we have covenanted together, this is not an option. Now that's one thing to say, you know, when the grass is green and things are good. It's another thing to say when you're staring down the barrel of it. And we've gone through some hard times. But we said, we really have to face, are we going to hold to this or not? The rubber really begins to meet the road when you hit those times. But you come back to those agreements. Next, know the difference between sins and strange personality quirks. Confront sins together with grace and with mercy. And bear with quirks. I've used this example before, and my wife knows it. Um, she's She wasn't able to be here today, but <laughs> I know she's fine with me sharing it. When we were early on in our marriage, She, uh, I realized that one of my, my wife's strange habits was that she would leave water glasses in different rooms. If you've ever seen the movie Signs, I mean, that was it. You know, it's, there's water glasses. I'd walk into a room, and... And I'm a bit, you know, I'm, uh, the, the banner over my life is a place for everything and everything in its place. And I get frustrated with that, even though I have one of the messiest vans at work. You know, it drives me nuts, but I'm just like, you know, uh, 
But it, it really does. It causes a source of stress for me. So it was odd for me that well, there's a water glass here. There's one in the kitchen. There's one in the dining room. There's one over here. And they have various levels of, you know, water in them. I just wanted to go around and, you know, do the, try to make music with them, you know. But it frustrated me. I was like, yeah, you know. And she didn't see an issue with it. You know, it was very practical. It's like, if I'm thirsty, I got a glass in every, you know, I don't have to go to the kitchen. My wife is extremely practical. So no. But I, I realized over time, like I said, that's a, that's a, that, that's just a character quirk of hers. That's, I mean, it's not worth fighting over, you know. It opens up for me. I I, I realize more about myself and some of my own kind of idiosyncrasies and, you know, anal attentiveness and those types of things, you know. But I learned over uh, over the years that that's a that's a sign that my wife has been here. If I walk into a room and there's a glass and I'm like, oh, am I? My wife has been here. My spouse who's chosen of God, holy and beloved, she's been here. And she may get thirsty, and that's okay. Yeah, that's okay. Now, she's recently, I shared, you know, I brought this story back up this past week, and she's like, you know what? You've started leaving glasses places. I'm like, oh, I have, haven't I? Oh. I've also started to lose my phone, too. I didn't do that. She used to say, where's my phone? I could tell her exactly where it is. Now I'm like, oh man, I, I spent five minutes, you know, ten minutes trying to search for my phone this morning. I was like, oh, <laughs> oh, grace and mercy, grace and mercy. Know the difference between sin and strange personality quirks. Confront sin, bear with quirks. Know your spouse's past and what burdens him or her. Know what burdens that he or she brings to your relationship. Okay, these these heavily influence your relationship. And they're often a huge source of conflict that's buried beneath your marriage. If your spouse was, say, if your spouse was abused as a child, that's going to that's gonna influence warmth and communication and intimacy in your own marriage. You need to know that. If your spouse went through trauma as a child in any form, that's going to influence your marriage. You need to know these things. Have those conversations. Because that's going to heavily influence conflict in your marriage. That's going to heavily influence where and how you apply grace and mercy in your marriage. Know how your spouse gives and receives love. It's an older book, uh, Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. Um, it's not the end-all, be-all to, you know, to marriage. But it is a helpful tool in understanding the difference between how people show love and affection to one another, but also receive it. Some people are big gift givers. You know, they give, they give gifts. Kids do this. When you find out real quick, you know, kids... Kids will give gifts, and you're like, I got all this stuff. What do I do with it? You know, but that's, they're showing love and affection towards you. It's, that's the way someone shows love and affection, but they may not receive it the same way. It may be more quality time. You know, I just, I really want to sit down with you. And you'll have nuanced aspects of that. Some people are like, I want to sit down with you. I want you to talk to me. I want you to look me in the face. Don't be on your phone, you know, just let's have an actual conversation. And others are like, look, I'm fine if we sit and we watch a TV show or a movie together. We don't have to talk. I just want to be in the, you know, it, be in your presence. 
know how your spouse gives and receives love. Right? You're two spies working together, but you've still got to decode one another. Okay? Use resources that are available to understand that better. Next, make time for one another. Spouses, husbands, wives, you need marital debriefings. And you have to carve that out of rock. And that's hard. That's hard to do. And it's okay. And it's necessary. Okay, if you have children, let me tell you this. It is okay for you to ask someone to watch your kids for an evening or even for a weekend. Tell them your pastor gave you permission. And then they can go to Alan. You know, it, it is okay. Say, well, I don't want to inconvenience somebody. I'm like, no, no, no. You need it. If you can't make that time in your schedule and you feel it, make it. Ask someone. If, it's, if you don't have family, if you ask someone. I'm grateful. I hear stories of people in the church who say, look, I'll watch your kids for you. You, go, you guys go out for date night or, you know, whatever. Yeah, that's so encouraging to me. There should be more of that in the, in the body of Christ. Make time for each other. You need marital debriefing. Next, be open with one another about changes as you age, both physical and in your character. You know, the, the spouse that you are married to, the person you are married to right now will not necessarily be the same spouse, the same person five and ten years from now. We're going to undergo changes. And this is part of the process of aging and growing and also the process of growing in Christ-likeness. You know, and you'll have steps with that. If you don't have kids, there's one step. You have kids, that's a whole nother step. There's a whole new process of, of your character development that occurs after you have children. right? And you can't see that until you do. Be open with one another. Age well and age together. If there's things that's happening in your character or even in physical change, be open about those things. You know, husbands, cherish and love your wives. Show them affection as they age. Because I know that process is not easy for them. Wives, love your husbands and give them affirmation as they age because that process is not easy for them. Our culture idolatrizes youth. You know, somewhere in that, somewhere in that teen year with, you know, the physical looks of the 20s. You know, I mean, in so many movies that have teenage, you know, drama and, and, and stuff, it's actually a 20 or 30 year old lead actor that plays that role. You know, I mean, you can see, I mean, there are, are you know, it's like, all right, we have that, we have the ability to like script this thing. So we're going to take the, the maturity, you know, of this person and we're going to put them back into you know this context in which we idolize you know and it's just total fiction right and yet that's what's cast in our culture and as we age it's like we don't know how to age well we struggle with that because of the message that's given to us through our culture all the more reason for spouses to be open and honest with one another about those struggles as, as, as we age and to give affirmation to one another as we go through those steps in life. Next, have an open and honest checkbook. Yeah, I did, a, I did just a quick search online. What are the top 10 
reasons for conflict in marriage, top 10 reasons for you know divorce. Financial struggles and financial disagreements still in that top 10 and most lists, it's still number one. Um, and, and, and it's not because the, the green stuff itself is an issue. It's back to James 4. It's because our love and affection and our passions conflict with those of our spouse and where our money, where our passions go, there our money goes. And when our, when our passions are separated, our money goes with it. So it's not an issue of the money itself. It's an issue of a conflict in, in, in our affections and the things we love and the things we want to spend our money on. So have an open and honest checkbook. Know if you're a spender or a saver. That's usually one in each marriage. One of you is a spender, one of you is a saver. And no. I think that's God's common grace that that oftentimes happens. Know if you're a spender or a saver and be honest with one another about those. Balance those, balance those strengths and weaknesses out. My wife and I have a, kind of have a, an understood rule in our, you know, in our, in our marriage that if, if whatever we want to purchase individually or collectively, you know, mostly that's individually, if whatever we want to purchase costs more than X amount, we talk about it. And that's been so helpful for us, you know, because it's, it's not like, well, you have a blank slate to buy whatever you want, you know. But if my wife wants to go buy a new pair of shoes, like she ordered some, or she, she was talking about ordering some, she wants to go buy a new pair of shoes, then we're going to have to have a conversation about it. Now, if it's a $500 pair of shoes, that's a different story, you know. But we don't have to have a conversation with that. There's no aspect of me trying to control her spending or her trying to control my spending, you know. But if, it, if there's a set amount, if, it, if it's over this, then we talk about it and we agree on it before it's purchased. You know, have an open and honest checkbook with one another. Whether you have a joint account or whether you have, you know, separate accounts, share that with one another. You know, have, have an open and honest, you know, financial book between the two of you. Next, I got three more. Next, there's no ideal time to have children and rarely is there a good time. I know this is a this is a struggle and a source of tension amongst so many, you know, married couples, so many young married couples. You know, it's like, well, we're waiting for this point to have kids, or we weren't waiting on this point. And sometimes that's tension. Not every couple agree. Not every, you know, the, the husband and wife don't always agree on that. There's no ideal time for that. Have those conversations early in your marriage for those who are not yet married or or uh, or newly newly married. Um, and recognize that having kids is a willingness to undergo a next step in sanctification, right? When you get married, you are giving up of yourself for the holy good of another person, right? When you have children, it's another step in that, right? You're not only giving up of yourself for the holy good of a spouse, you're now giving up of yourself for the holy good of a child, two child, two children, you know, however many, So know that. There's no ideal time to have children and rarely is there a good time. People have been doing this for a long time. They figured it out. You know, your kids are going to be robust. That's something I learned early on. Wow, God's grace. <laughs> My kids should have been problems early on so many times. I was so anxious and nervous. I'm like, they really do okay, you know? 
We're going to be okay. Last two, husbands love your wives. That's her greatest need. It's her greatest need to be cherished and know that she's the most important thing in your, in your life. Wives, would you say you agree with that? To know, to cherish her, know that she's the most important thing in your life. Husbands love your wives. And wives, wives respect your husbands. And I say that and I know that's going to click in so many people's head. Well, that's arrogant. That's arrogant. It's not arrogant to desire affirmation and respect. Wives, that's your husband's greatest need. There's an old adage that says, everything, every man does what he does for the admiration of one woman, his wife. Wives, everything your husband does is for the admiration of one woman and one woman only. That's you. That's you. Give your husband affirmation. Even if that's hard. And I recognize sometimes that's hard. You know? Maybe it's like, what, I got, don't have much to pick from. Takes out one garbage can. Thank you. Thank you. So helpful. You know, gets the kids dressed, puts, you know, mismatches stuff. I've sent my kids to school in pajamas. I didn't realize they were pajamas once. You know, thank you for getting the kids dressed. You know, that was just, thank you. Thank you. You're a wonderful father. You know, give affirmation to your husband. It's a great, great book called Love and Respect by Dr. Emerson Edrich. If there's one book I could advise any married couple read, that would be it. Love and respect. And the, the way that a wife respe- receives love and the need she has and how the husband receives love, which is actually respect and affirmation. Phenomenal, fantastic book. I, I highly recommend that you read it. All right, well those are my 12 just very practical. I told you we're going to shift and we're going to counseling session. So that's where we've been. All right. Now, let me address in just final closing. All of this is assumed that husband and wife are born again believing Christians share the same worldview. What happens if you're not? What happens if you're married to a spouse who's not a Christian? Wants nothing to do with Christ? Or on the other end of the spectrum, you're really not sure. They say that they're a Christian, but there's no fruit there. Okay? Peter gives helpful words here to a wife. 1 Peter three, uh, three, two, uh, 3, 1 and 2 says, in the same way, he's talking about the way that Christ suffered for you. Christ suffered for you, endured, but he may not redeem you. He says, in the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husband so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Now, don't read this and think this is a pass on a husband abusing a wife. Absolutely not. That if abuse takes place, get help. Absolutely. That's not a pass for abuse, but it is rather it is the trust and the power of the display of the gospel through you. Trust in the power of the display of the gospel through you. You trust in that because there, there is a common grace there. Your spouse is still created in the image of God, just as you are. And though that image may not be redeemed, 
it still carries that coating. If it's a wife, the wife still has the same needs. If it's a husband, his husband still has the same needs. The truths that, we, that, that I shared earlier, they still apply in your marriage. Your spouse still wants and needs the same things. There's, there's still that same aspect there. Now, the pursuit of unity is darkened. It's darkened on one side, which does make it harder, but the path is still there. So let me encourage you with that. And I encourage you also to involve fellow Christians of your same gender. If you're a wife, gather other wives around you. Gather other, young la- other ladies around you. If you're a husband, gather other men around you who can walk alongside you for prayer and encouragement. And then lastly, give love and respect. Be amazed at how that posture of, of, of gentleness and humility, whether you're, the, whether you're the husband or the wife, begins to shed light and break down barriers that were, that, that were there before in your marriage. So I'll close with Paul in verse 13 of Colossians 3. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. That if we love one another, that we're willing to endure with one another, that we're willing to forgive one another. And that unifies us in marriage. We're no longer two nations waging this covert war between each other. Two entities who have desires and affections for things that are totally separated. We're unified under that banner of grace and mercy given to us through the cross and we walk together and that's hard because that means sometimes spouse is going to see things in you that is sin that you don't want to talk about. And that's going to be hard to work through that together. Sometimes there's going to be things that are strange and you're just like, this bothers me, but that's part of who they are. I have to get over it. We work through those things together. But we do it as two who are unified through the grace of Christ, having been raised with him. And we walk together as co-heirs in the mercy and grace that's given to us. Let me pray for us and we'll be dismissed. Father God, I thank you. Thank you for your word. I thank you, Father, that I thank you that even though sin has broken the perfect relationship that you've designed for a husband and a wife, I thank you that you you didn't remove the covenant of marriage in the garden, but you allowed it to continue. You allowed it to continue that a husband and wife broken and sinners redeemed by grace might still come together know deeper your love for them that the characters traits of humility and compassion and mercy and grace that are intrinsic to your nature displayed through Christ that they might be portrayed to the world 
and to each other through that covenant of, of marriage. I thank you, Father, for the gift of conflict. Father, through conflict, so often humility is, is rooted and grown. So, Father, pray that we wouldn't necessarily run from it and try and avoid it, but when it comes up, that we would fight well and we would fight together. Pray that husbands and wives would recognize each other as chosen by you, set apart, holy, sanctified, that they would treat each other as such. And that they are beloved by you through Christ first and foremost. And that that would affect their relationships and most specifically conflict that arises. And that Father we would be slow to anger and quick to forgive. For you have forgiven us much. It's in Christ's precious and holy name that I pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you, may he keep you, may he cause his face to shine upon you, may he lift up his countenance towards you, may he give you peace. You're dismissed. Have a good afternoon.